0: The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own, or those of our guests, and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 117 of the Squawk Ident podcast, recorded on the 25th of August, 2022, from the mobile Aviator Sound Studios, a.k.a. Studio 2010, on the second floor of the EB Hotel in Miami, Florida. No, 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 no. On today's flight, I am honored to spend some time with a phenomenal aviator, leader, and mentor. He is a retired Major General for the California Air National Guard. He was responsible for the mission readiness and operational effectiveness across a broad spectrum of programs and activities involving fire wings and over 4,900 military and civilian personnel serving at 10 locations within California. He began his civilian career at Legacy Airlines in the year 2000, where he currently flies the A320 fleet of aircraft as a captain.
1: Elite.
0: From his start as a flight engineer on the 727 to type ratings on the 75, 76, 78, and the A320. He takes us along on his journey in aviation, joining me in the middle of a sequence where we just returned from South America. Help me in welcoming to the show, Captain Greg Jones. Captain, how you doing? How I'm
1: doing. Thanks for having me on,
0: Tony. this is an awesome opportunity to spread a little knowledge and little spend a little time talking. Oh, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, you know, we we hit it off right away, we did this trip that started out out of Ontario, California. A nice little, I guess it's a four-day, right? Yeah, technically. Yeah, technically a four-day. And, uh, and we right away, kind of hit it off and had some great conversations. Um, and we both looked at each other and said, Hey, I've never been to this uh, uh, Suriname. What, what, what <laughs> what's, that what's, about? what's there? <laughs> you know? So here we both were, you know, like a Wikipedia, like where is Suriname? And we knew it was Thank South goodness America. goodness for Google. Right. I mean, yeah. it's really made us more educated aviators. <laughs> yeah. Within minutes we can look something up. And so here we were both kind of looking at the routing and the day before, we were like looking at what kind of languages they speak there, and because it's not Spanish. Yeah, different surprisingly culture. Surprisingly enough. V- very,
1: very intricate, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so we did our little homework. So, listener, if you're out there going, what, where the heck is Suriname? Uh, Wikipedia, look that up. Uh, <laughs> always good to kind of educate yourself, as a, especially as an aviator, you're going to be going to these places. Yeah, you better do your homework. And, uh, and we did, and we had a great time. Um, what What was your impression on that first few days of that trip
1: Yeah, you know you pretty much hit the nail on, on the on the head there it was uh, I was not completely prepared, but uh, having been to South America before with the military and the airline. Kind of new, but this is a little bit different location because it was so small and the support there was not just not the same. And we showed up and we didn't have a big customs to go through when we got there. But but backing it up, you know, in route, we didn't have the, the same support that I would have expected if we had, say, gone to Lima or a big location like that where there's, you know, adequate weather and no TAMs, et cetera, et cetera. But we kind of had to figure it out. And oh, by the way, once we got feet wet out of Miami, we didn't have internet. So it was difficult to get updates on some of our uh, Wi-Fi based tools on the airplane. So we had, to luckily, we had a good radar and we were able to pick our way through the weather getting down there. But uh, and everything worked out fine. But the the night we left, you know, I was hadn't really thought through all of the differences of operating on a little ramp there without a tug and starting the motors and taxiing out and how do we set the brakes and how do we clear them off the interphone? What we normally do our normal Battle rhythm or, or sequence of events that we would do at any large airport is is different, and that's one thing I took away from that last night was that got to think this through, and probably would have been a bit, little bit better in, in in the future. I'll that's something I'll brief and go, hey, this is a different a different operation down here altogether. We need to be aware of this and this and this and this. But that's yeah. what I took away from it.
0: Yeah, and that's you know so especially uh, domestic pilots, uh, you know even at at major airlines, you know you you do the same rhythm. As you mentioned, day in, day out, you go through your standard operating procedures and you get this uh, just, what do we call it? Unconscious bias. No. Yeah. yeah. You expect so things to be this expect-
1: way, but they're not really. Expectation bias. Yeah.
0: yeah. So you, we, we kind of expect things to go a certain way. And then you're like, well, wait, a minute. there's no jeopardy here. Oh, well, that's okay. We used stairs before. <laughs> and then you go, there's no tug out there how are they going to push us back? It's like, well, we don't get pushed back because we're in the middle of a huge ramp and we're the only airplane yeah, on the exactly. ramp, you know? And there's no ATIS at the, this airport. Yeah. yeah. So the, the control tower is the one giving you the weather. It's, and it's
1: in meters too and yeah, hecto, hectopascals, Hectopascals. Et cetera, et cetera, and, so. and
0: transition altitude was not 18,000 feet. That's another one. It was 4,000 4, on the way down yeah. and 3,000 on yeah. the way up. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, and you looked at me and you said, okay, we're passing through 18. Should we run a descent checklist? Now, kind can't, but you can. But you kind of. So we did a modified one because that's what we're used to. Yeah, and we just went back and had to do had kind of one open item, the yeah. altimeter setting, until we got to the till four thousand feet. Yeah, because if you wait until four thousand feet to do a descent checklist, not enough time. That's not enough time. I mean, yeah. you have all these flows with telling flight attendants prepare for landing and all this stuff, and it's like, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it was a fun. It yeah. was a challenge.
1: Yeah, I like the, I need to do more. <laughs> That's what I learned. <laughs> yeah. if Anything else?
0: You know, and and here you, we are. You know, going to the Republic of Suriname. It's a a Dutch. Uh, it was a colony. colony. Dutch colony. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have uh, a president. We walked past the the house of the president. Did to take a shortcut through the yard. That didn't work out. Yeah, the security stopped us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, you can't be here. Like what? It's just. Is this the White House? What is this? <laughs> Um, but it was fun. Um, the hotel drive. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. An hour yeah. through the rainforest. Yeah. On a two-lane road. Wild dogs everywhere on the road. Dogs. Walking around. Fog. And, <laughs> and we get in these vehicles that they don't have in the U.S. They're, you know, they're still the same brands. Toyota, Mazda, all that stuff. Ford. But these are model vehicles that yeah. we don't see. So that was interesting as a car guy. I liked seeing that. But then the first thing we notice is what? Right side. Yeah, driving on the wrong side of the road. Yeah. The left side. Yeah. So the driver was I, I got what I thought was gonna be, you know, behind the passenger seat and the driver gets in. I'm like, what wait, where's the yeah. steering wheel? What's he doing? He's getting in on the wrong side. <laughs> what? <laughs> so yeah, it was it was very interesting. Now the population is approximately six hundred and twelve thousand people. Yeah. That's a small country. Yeah. Um the, it's, isn't it like the smallest country in South America,
1: I think I heard somewhere? Too. Yeah, I
0: think we did read that Land-wise. somewhere. Yeah. Uh, smallest sovereign state in South America. There it yeah. is, yeah. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in finding out a little bit about where we were, uh, check out Suriname uh, on Wikipedia or wherever you... You know, that kind
1: of takes me back to, you know, one of the reasons... Why I'm I'm happy about what I'm you know I'm i I feel blessed and happy that I'm actually working in this career field because you get opportunities to do something like that. When I saw it on my schedule, I'm like, where is that? You know, usually if you have a bad trip, you want to trip trade it away or get rid of it. But I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to hang on to this because this is an opportunity that I'll probably never get again to go to Suriname. You know, I
0: mean, yeah. why not? And yeah, it's worth it. It's
1: fun. Yeah,
0: you, know, <laughs> you know, we got paid. Hanging out by the pool yesterday and. Look, we were looking all over, we were hanging out, having some iced tea, and a lot of Indian yeah. nationalities. Yeah, nationalities. Um, a lot, a lot of, of Dutch, Asians there. A lot of Asians. A lot of Asians. And everyone kind of spoke English, but that was not anyone's primary. Yeah, they language. they have like their own dialect there on top of
1: Dutch is the primary language there, the official language, but they have their own dialect that's kind of a mix of English and all the different ones, because like the guy on the bus was telling us that they got the little old Indian ladies, they can't speak Dutch, they can't speak English, so they have a language that they can kind of relate to and are able to uh, to speak in intelligently.
0: Yeah, I know he mentioned what it was called. It's kind of yeah. like, what well, we have Spanglish, you yeah. know, trying yeah. to communicate like that, yeah. here in, in Miami. We're trying to use Spanglish to communicate down here. <laughs> <laughs> and there they use this uh, Dutch slash native French New Guinea slash Brazilian slash whatever language. Yeah. It's all a bunch of languages yeah. all together. Yeah. So it was a fun trip. Yeah. You know, yeah. and continues to be, even though. Not done up, yet, dude. Came in on the red eye last night, crashed pretty hard, and then today grabbed lunch, and here we are recording a podcast. Roger. And let me just say thank you uh, yeah. for joining us, agreeing to be on. Um, you know, it's funny, we, I often say here on the show that You can sit there and fly years, if not decades, and meet new co-pilots, new pilots, new captains, new flight attendants, every lake. And you only have a really metered time to get to know each other. And there are those that kind of just do the chit-chat, you know, let's talk about guns, politics, and religion, (laughs) and move on. And then there are those that kind of stop and listen and say, wow, you did what? before this? Yeah. How, how did you get into that? And it's just, all you got to do is ask one or two questions. yeah. And next thing you know, you, you might learn something very interesting.
1: Yeah. I find 90% of the time that people I fly with in the airplane, they all have good, interesting stories to tell. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's and that's, cool.
0: that's how we started. Yeah. I asked you a couple of questions out on the flight deck. We were leaving out of Ontario. You said, Hey, I don't really fly much out of Ontario. And we kind of like talked about, uh, the NADP 1 yes. procedures and what we can expect, and all, and like the short taxi and everything. And you were very, you know, receptive and you were asking questions. And, and I felt, ah, this guy, he's got a background. I can tell he's military. And you told me, oh, yeah, Air, Air National Guard, <laughs> C 130s. And my eyes lit up. I was like, oh, my favorite aircraft ever. <laughs> And I you told did you say that too, yeah. Yeah, I told you the story about when I was a, a young kid, yeah. uh, six or seven years old, and my parents took me to an air show, at Travis Air Force Base, right? And come to find out, you spent some time there. Mm-hmm. So, how did your journey begin this this journey in aviation? Well, you know, it
1: goes. Uh, you know, I'll go way back when I was a, a young kid. Always been interested in airplanes, and uh, my uncle was a uh, a captain at KLM Royal Dutch airlines. And, uh, you know, I always talked to him about flying and stuff. And I always researched and drew pictures of airplanes, but I had an opportunity to fly. Uh, the family was going around the world on a, uh, vacation, if you will. And, uh, my uncle was flew the leg from Rome to Amsterdam and he was a captain and it was an old, uh, DC nine, Precursor to the MD eighty, and I got to sit in the cockpit for the takeoff and and all of that. So, um, you know, I got a great opportunity to see what it was all about. I got to have my lunch up there and everything. And so I'm like, wow, this is fun, you know. And so we, at the time, were living in Australia. Went back there, and I said, I want to be a pilot. I want to be an astronaut. I want to go to the Air Force Academy. Blah blah blah. Just Kind of working on all that, and then we left uh, Australia, moved to Canada, Western Canada, British Columbia, and that environment there just wasn't really conducive to me going to school, continuing education blah blah blah, so i I really just got graduated from high school and started working uh, for some labor labor jobs uh, was a teamster for a while had no intentions on going to university or flying. Kind of all fell off the uh, plate. Uh, I went down to visit my dad, was running a, a, an office in in uh, Nevada, and I had an opportunity to go work for a law firm down there uh, temporarily. And I, I got to see the advantage of an education, working with a bunch of professionals. Uh, one day, dad, and my dad and I were at a at a uh, state fair, walking around. We walk into this big building, and I like working on cars. That was kind of my my uh, pastime from from junior in high school or young in high school. I built cars. So anyway, I walked in. There's a jet engine with a bunch of dudes in uniform, and uh, I said, I'm going to go talk to these guys. My dad goes over and and talks to some people at a Forest Service uh, counter, but. Anyway, the next day, next thing you know, I'm enlisted in the National Guard. So I was a jet engine mechanic. I started off as an airman basic, which is the lowest possible rank in the uh, Air Force, in the military. It's E1. There's nothing lower. So um, I took a semester off. I had started University of Nevada. Took a semester off, uh, went to boot camp, went to tech school as a jet engine, which is a jet engine mechanic school. And I came back, and uh, so I worked part-time as a jet engine mechanic and went back to university. And then I transferred to uh, Southern Cal and transferred to the unit down there. It was a mechanic, too. And then I I decided I want to go to pile training. You know, they have a, a selection process at each wing in the National Guard and so the Air National Guard so I uh, I competed my junior year at uh, USC and I was selected so when I graduated they sent me to pilot training at Williams Air Force Base in Phoenix so when I went there, I knew what I was going to be. I knew I was going to be a C-130 pilot. It, and at the time, we are in Van Nuys in California. So uh, when they go around the class the first day, what does everybody want to be? And they're all like F-15, Bitburg, you know, F-16, Luke. They're all, everybody wants to be a fighter pilot. And they got to me, and I'm like, I just want to be a C-130 pilot in Van Nuys. And they're all looking at me like, what's that? Because very few of the active duty folks in the class, we're about— 20% were guard and reserve, and the rest was active duty in class. They had no idea what the guard was. And then and they learned in the next year what it was about because I already had my airplane. I already had my location. They were all vying for what kind of airplane they were going to fly and where they were going to go, and then they were going to have a long commitment afterwards. So after I completed training, my uh, pilot training, then I went to C-130 school at Little Rock for four months, and I came back to my wing and where you do seasoning training for a month. Just kind of learning the local area and the the uh, the procedures, the local procedures. And then while I was doing that, I got hired by the Navy as a, uh, a flight test engineer. I have an engineering degree, so I so I was I flew part time with the Guard, worked full time with the Navy, but it really kind of worked the other way around. I flew a lot of trips with the Guard, and I think I spent more time on the Guard base than I did my civilian job. But it gave me a great opportunity. To fly, and you know, I, I went through the process and upgraded aircraft commander, became an instructor pilot, uh, evaluator pilot in the C-130. I started moving into some command positions. I was a squadron commander for a while. I was a group commander for a while. I moved to another uh, base to be the wing commander for a while, and then I I took an opportunity to go and uh, do some staff work at the headquarters Air Mobility Command at Scott Air Force Base for a while, and then um, I also deployed a couple times in the middle of that, and then I finished off my career at the headquarters uh, in Sacramento for the California Air Guard, and the last couple of years wasn't in a flying position, but up to, up to all the way up through wing commander or flying positions, so I flew a lot in the Guard militarily, but the last four or five years, you know, really didn't, didn't have an opportunity to fly.
0: And this all happened over the course of how long?
1: Wow. So, you know, I kind of gauge everything on how old my daughter was, because she's, my oldest daughter was 11 days old when I showed up at uh, Williams Air Force Base, and she's 34 now, so 34 years uh, of, and and like I said, the last four years, four to five years, I didn't fly, so probably
0: close to 30 years, you know? And you retired in, in 2021, just
1: 21, in April yeah. of 21,
0: yeah. Yeah, and how did that retirement go? Good.
1: I, uh, You know, I I had realized in the last couple of years, because I was not flying with Legacy as much, I was taking time off from Legacy, and I either took full-time military leave and, and just being paid military, or I took a lot of time away from the Legacy company and uh, and did military. But I found that I, at, at some point I was taking a pay cut doing the military. And I realized at that point that it wasn't really about the money, it was about the service, you know. I had a, a, a discussion with a young captain that I had always given a pitch to the new, the younger crowd, the active duty pilots about joining the Guard and Reserve because it's a backdrop, it's a money uh, uh, insurance if you lose your airline position like I did. I got furloughed in 2002 and then went back to my uh, guard job. And she said to me, hey, hey, sir, I hear you've given that spiel, but you need to roll in service because a, a lot of us do this for service. And the light clicked on when she told me that, I'm like, I do the same thing. I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing it for service. And it's serving the country, yes, but it's serving other people, other airmen. You see the young airmen that you're mentoring, that you're helping. You see somebody having a problem that you're helping them with fixing. You know, a young staff sergeant whose family's having a problem, and you can reach in and fix it. That's to me, was really more fulfilling about the job than anything else Would being able to interact and help, you know, the airmen um, in the wing. So it just became the time i'm like you know i i got to move on and and kind of get my life going on at some point you got to you got to end it and
0: april 21 was the right time that's it <laughs> and you know we we were having some conversations this week as we're flying together out there on the flight line you know cruising along at 37000 feet 500 yeah. plus miles an hour with our hair on fire not really drinking our coffee on our uh, tray tables on the uh, airbus and just having these well, like yeah. conversations about our histories right. and what really impressed me, I asked you, I said, well, you, you've had a very successful military career. You must come from an, a military background and, and because especially you were living all over the world. You're, you're yeah. an international kid. Right. And then you told me, no, my dad yeah. was not in the military. He was a geologist. Yeah. Yeah. Canadian,
1: for a Canadian mining company. Yeah.
0: yeah. So you were, you were hanging yeah. out in mining towns. No. And,
1: Military background, and I, and I, and and we talked about this again today, too, that I I think the Guard and Reserve are such a, uh, not a very well-known opportunity for a lot of people, and I stumbled into it, I walked into that building at the State Fair, and I saw those those individuals, all in uniform, standing around a jet engine. I'm like that piqued my interest. Not if anything piques everybody's interest enough to ask the questions and, and follow on and find out. But you know, there's a lot of roads to go to to go down to get to uh, to get to an airline position, an airline job. And I've I've just found over time that you know the guard and reserve is. It's not for everybody, but for those people that have the aptitude or the desire to be in the military, it is a great way to get your foot in the door. And you stay in the door. You know, I've, I retired with a 38 year military retirement. I've got my airline retirement coming up. I also have a civil service retirement because most of my full time with the uh, National Guard was civil service. So it's worked out in the long run monetarily for me. And I just took a lot of time, but. You know, I was able to get my flight time and not pay for it. I was getting paid as a second lieutenant, flying my rear end off to get my flight time to get on with an airline. But you're collecting a paycheck at the whole time, too. I remember my last day in the service. I packed my duffel bag. My buddies drove me to the airport. The moment I got on the plane, I was so sure I'd never wear a uniform again. Then, a couple of months ago, I changed my mind. I got a part-time job with my hometown Air National Guard unit. They needed the technical skills I'd learned in the service. I needed the extra paycheck. But I'm getting so much more. I'm working with the latest technology, getting good benefits, meeting new people, and helping my country. If those buddies of mine could see me now, they wouldn't believe it. For two days a month and 15 days a year, I'm back in uniform part-time in the Air National Guard, and it feels terrific. We got
0: America's guys. Yeah, and, and for, for the friends that I have that are in the Guard or, or on reserves for the Army or, or what have you, it always amazes me what a smart choice that is, because you have, you're, you're serving but you also have flexibility, Yeah, you know, and if you want to do your couple of weekends a month, great. But if you want to do more, you can, Right, you know, um, and like you mentioned, you know, right now, times are good in this industry. Uh, not so long ago, times were not so good. Um, I was one of those that got the furlough notice during the whole pandemic, you know, restructuring. Um, luckily I didn't get furloughed. I was very fortunate. I was right there on the line. But there were a few that did. Yeah. And and I spoke with a few of them and asked them, what are you gonna do? You're gonna go work at Home Depot? What's what's going on? You're an airline yeah. pilot. And they're like, no, I'm just gonna go spend more time at reserves and you know, yeah. still keep flying. Yeah. That's what I love doing. It's exactly what I did. So
1: I fell back into the same job I left. I left full time. I was full time with the uh, Air National Guard. And when I got furloughed, I rolled back into exactly the same job. They hadn't filled it in three years. There was no applicants for it. Wow. So I, I, I applied for my position. I got hired again. And so when I got furloughed, it was seamless. And we reached straight back into
0: my old guard job. Now, you were, you were also mentioning to me that you were doing some firefighting. In the C-130, how did that come about?
1: So the wing at uh, Channel at Channel Islands, uh, California, is one of the four wings that flies the Modular Airborne Firefighting System mission, the MAFS mission. There's eight units, two to each wing. Wing at the time, North Carolina was one. uh, This the the reserve at Sea Springs and. Wyoming, the Cheyenne Guard unit also had them, so that's four wings, and now North Carolina's in C-17, so that unit's gone to a Reno now, so they're flying the MAPS mission, but each wing has two airplanes or has two systems that they can fly on the airplanes, and so... Uh, it's pretty cool. You're activated, and you work for either the Forest Service or in a state of, like a large state like California, where we have Cal Fire. Uh, we can be tasked by Cal Fire to go out by the state to go out and fly on missions, and it's it's exhilarating. I'm not gonna lie to you. It's it's by far the most challenging, and the most rewarding, and the most fun mission that we had in the C-130 because you're you know you you go out there and you're you're fighting a fire. You're you're saving people's properties. You're saving. You're actually doing, you know, something for the good of the nation, for the people, the local people, you know. I mean, I've walked into a walked into a restaurant after flying a mission and people stand up and, and clap, you know. I mean it's that it's that awesome. But um to you know, to, to uh to get an effective drop, you'd have to drop it around a hundred and twenty, a hundred and thirty feet, but hundred and thirty knots. And the system, the 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 uh, the system's designed to build on a fire line. So if they can put a heavy equipment like a D8 or a D9 in there, like flat land, that's what they'll use. So, but up in the hills, a ridge line, they can't get equipment up there. So we would be the ones that would build a line on the ridge line. So all of our drops were down a down a canyon and a ridge line. So you're flying in the mountains and you got to get. The airplane slowed down, get it configured, get the uh, system ready to drop, and then you follow a lead airplane. The uh, usually the force service would provide an airplane, you'd, you'd follow them in a base. Or, sorry, you start off on downwind base, and you'd be talking to the pilot of the other airplane, telling them what speeds you want to be on, and then you roll out on final, and they'll tell you exactly where to drop. And the coat bottle has a trigger and right as you go over the drop and you can tell where the last line was and you, you get you get a good feeling of when to pull the trigger and you squirt the stuff and it takes like five to 10 seconds to drop 20,000 pounds of retard. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. And you were. You're giving me a little bit of a, a lesson on that about the nozzles and how it yeah like vaporizes the retardant. Yeah, it's like a it's like a huge spray can because that system we have uh,
1: the MAP system is a is a uh, aerosol. It has big air tanks on there that blows it out. Vice like most systems nowadays are belly drop where they have doors and they have tanks inside integral tanks in the airplane and then the doors. It's got much smarter than it was 20 years ago when I started flying the airplanes because the belly drops. The doors are either open or closed. But now they're tied in with GPS. They know speed. They know altitude. they You know, the radar altimeter tied into it. And now it's all based on, you know, processor-based systems now for those doors are really smart. They sequence the doors to get the right drop, the right, you know, depending you know, Not you didn't have to necessarily fly a target altitude and airspeed like we had to in the maps. They could be the system would compensate for any differences in speed and altitude. The new systems on the belly drop, so it's got a lot smarter. It's a pretty cool mission.
0: Yeah, and you know the we were talking about CG shift and how dangerous CG shift can be, especially on a heavy aircraft. And I was asking you, how how do you compensate? Do you just trim forward and and just kind of Full speed ahead with all your might or is the system governing a lot of that auto trim
1: so, no auto trim on the herc but uh, yeah you, the older system went out the paratroop door the the two tubes stuck down and so you definitely felt a nose over rotation and you just had to just had to you had to fight against that Fights probably not the right word, but compensate, lead, know that it's going to happen, and just apply a little bit of back back uh, aileron or I should say uh, elevator to keep the nose you know from going down. The newer system goes out the paratroop door and it gets you a little bit of yaw, but not even it's it's really a well designed system so that it kind of fires down the center line of the airplane, so it's not as, as dramatic, but you still have to be aware of it. The bigger problem is overspeeding. You you know you're coming down a hill at 130 knots and the flap overspeed is 170 it doesn't take long to get there so you gotta really start pulling back to keep the airplane from over speeding. yeah yeah that's
0: amazing <laughs> um i mean I, we, we all have seen the videos yeah. of these giant tankers dropping especially in california dropping yeah. fire retardant and they're so low and they're maneuvering these yeah. things like they're in a 172 Yeah, you know? um and it's just i've always has so much mad respect for, yeah. for any of the pilots that are in command of that kind of operation. It's so dangerous. Yeah. And one of my favorite movies um, is Always. Always? It's like the movie Always, the 1989 yeah. American romantic fantasy drama directed by Steven Spielberg, of course, my hero, Senor Spielberg, starring uh, Richard Dreyfuss, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, Brad yep. Johnson, and Audrey Hepburn. When I saw Audrey Hepburn, and I can remember... Yeah, going to blockbuster video, grabbing this movie because there was an airplane on the cover, <laughs> and taking it home and watching it. And uh, Holly Hunter, great, you know Richard Dreyfus, great, Spielberg, great. And then I saw Audrey Hepburn uh, in her role, and uh, I was like, oh my god! <laughs> yeah.
1: I don't remember her in that movie, but I was probably more interested in the airplanes. Than she it. <laughs> plays a. If I remember
0: correctly, she plays an angel that is mentoring Richard Dreyfus, who okay. plays a new angel who is trying to mentor a young. Hotshot pilot who yep. is not the brightest, but <laughs> has a good heart and and yes. uh, yeah, it, it' fantastic film, folks. If you if you want to see an aviation film, a lot of heart about firefighting in airplanes, uh, always. About, yeah. you know, directed by yeah, Steven Spielberg. I highly recommend it. Yeah. yeah. So when you when you were talking about firefighting, uh, even the other day, I was I stopped, and I thought about it, and I went, "Ah, oh, like the movie Always." <laughs> <laughs> Now you, you, the firefighting wasn't like the last thing you did. You ended up actually continuing with the the 129th rescue wing or Adam Moffitt. How did you get into that position? So I was given the opportunity to go be the wing commander there. So I, I,
1: you know, I was a Herc pilot flying C-130s and they have uh, HC HC They had uh, at the time, uh, MC-130Ps, they, uh, they use them for rescue, their a refuel capability airplane and refuelable, they can refuel. Actually, I'm sorry, the MCs could not re- be refueled, but they do refuel the helicopter. So mm-hmm. completely different mission to me, but I walked into it and I just, you know, they had the uh, PJs para-rescue there too. The three squadrons were the Hurks, the H-60s, and the uh, PJs were the three operational squadrons there. And man, they knocked it out of the park. We did a bunch of rescues while I was there. Uh, you know, we kind of, we kind of forget now about the whole COVID thing, but we had that cruise ship that came back into San Francisco and they wouldn't let it enter the harbor there because a bunch of people were positive on the boat and the coast guard approached us and said, you know, can we put some PJs on that boat to do the, um, testing? And we're like, bad idea, bad idea. That's not what they do. And then after a little bit of discussions with the leadership, and everybody came back and said, you know, we can do this. This is going to work out. I think we'll do it. So the Coast Guard had an H-60. They were going to fly a team of two. They could only fit two PJs and, uh, and take them out to the boat and drop them. Well, the morning of, they their airplane broke, and so we took one of our H-60s and sent four PJs. And they had a CDC doctor that had trained them on how to do it, how to wear all the gear, the PPE and everything. And then, um, and so when they flipped to our airplane, we had more room in it. We don't have a big tank inside our airplane like the Coast Guard airplanes, or 60, HH-60s do. So anyway, they asked the doc, hey, do you want to go too? So we took the CDC doctor and she fast roped from the uh, helicopter down onto the deck of the cruise ship and they did all of the testing. And, and so I, you know, I kinda of say, hey, that wing was at the leading edge of the whole COVID nineteen response stuff. You know. Wow. And it's there's there's some great videos on YouTube with a crew actually roping down onto the uh the ship. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean they did a lot of neat stuff and a lot of deployments and that and just working, you know, uh for the state. And, you know, we man, when I was there we hit over a we went over a thousand rescues uh at the wing, personnel
0: rescues, so uh yeah, and we Any did quite particular a particular rescue stand out. Can
1: well, um yeah, we had a couple. We had one that I actually flew the airplane on where we sent a um we had a ship that uh one of the sailors on it was about 600 miles off the coast was uh ill, very ill. And so we got we'd get a phone call from the coast guard because the coast guard could not do it they didn't have the capability to go that far with their helicopters. And so they have a smaller single-engine Dauphine and in our H60s, HH60s are two-engine, bigger, bigger helicopter, refuelable. So we'll send a Herc and a couple of 60s out. and then So on this particular mission, we sent uh, two, um, two helicopters and a C-130 out there, and we took a PJ team out there, and they dropped in the water 600 miles off the coast, when they got in their Zodiacs, went to the ship, got on board, took care of the individual, stabilized them. The PJs are trained EMTs with weapons. You know, they're trained to save lives and take lives. And so um, they were on the boat. And then so the next day, the ship was steaming towards San Francisco. We had to go get them. So we launched. We only had 160 to launch that morning. So we launched the 60 at about 3 in the morning. And we took off like at uh, about 6 in the morning, and I was flying the airplane, and our job was to meet the 60, a couple hundred miles off the coast, give it gas so it could make it all the way to the boat and pick up the PJ team and the patient and bring them back. And then we would we'd fly over the boat, loiter, wait for them to pick up the passenger and the PJs and bring them, uh, the injured uh, sailor, I should say, and bring them back to shore. And then we would give them gas along the way because they're you know refuelable. Well, we get about 150 miles off, and then we're catching up to the helicopter, and all of a sudden, they're like, hey, we're RTB. We've got a chip light. And I don't know if you're familiar with helicopters, but it's got a couple of big gearboxes, and they've got a little detector in there if it detects metal chips and the light goes on. Mm-hmm. So they had a light, and it basically told them that their rear gearbox was Getting probably coming up. apart. Yeah. It had metal shavings in it. And they're 100 miles off the coast, above a deck. They're at like 3,000 feet and it was a deck below them at 2000 and they and we just we flew over top of them and we kind of kept them you know uh you know as as a wingman kept with them we didn't go back out to the ship we just stayed with them and they made it all the way into watsonville mm. first airport and it was weather they had to fly and approach through the weather they landed next day they sent a uh, a maintenance team down there and yes the gearbox on that airplane had to be replaced it was faulty luckily wow. it stayed together and they made it all the way to shore but yeah. So that we couldn't go get that p j team, and uh the Navy had a destroyer that was part of a carrier escort group off San Diego, and the Navy had that destroyer go down there and pick them up and oh. picked up our team. And then they had a helicopter pick them up off of the ship, go to the destroyer, then go to the carrier. And these guys showed up on the carrier on this 60, and and the sailors on this carrier are like, Why the heck? They've they've made they've made us turn around the aircraft carrier and sent one of its escorts out there. And these the helicopter lands and they all get and the PJs get off, and there's like four guys, and they're all, you know, geared out. They look like, you know, like seals, you know, and they're like, Wow, who do they got? They've got somebody, you know, they've wrapped up like Osama bin Laden. The one one of his buddies. No, <laughs> no just, <laughs> rescue. <laughs> just rescue. Just rescuing a sick guy. That's it. A guy.
0: No, that's so. I mean, those experiences in life that any soldier can can just tell you about, and most are humble about it. They yeah. won't tell you unless you no. ask them. Um, but those experiences really do shape a mentality yeah. towards helping others, servicing others respecting our fellow man, fellow woman. Right. Um, and I think that's why military, not just military pilots, but military service members in general command so much respect in an industry like ours. Right. Um, and a lot of times civilian pilots that came up through the ranks of the civilian world, never having had the opportunity to serve the country, they just don't get it sometimes. Like they don't understand... The sacrifice that's made, and and how much bigger the world is than than we think. And sometimes you hear all oh, those military pilots have an attitude, or those military pilots, you know, at the airline, you know, they don't get they don't get the operation, they don't understand SOPs. Yeah, maybe not first, especially when they're new. But damn, they're quick on the draw. They've seen some shit. Yeah, and they don't get their panties in a bunch. Like some pilots. And yeah. I mean, we talk about it all the time. We don't really badmouth anyone on this show. We never talk about the negative experiences. We did talk earlier today about, um, you know, you, you take your experiences, both the ones you had in the military and the ones you have here sure. in the civilian ranks of the airline industry. And you, you, you said something pretty cool. You said you put that in your toolbox. Right. And those experiences, good and bad. You fly with a guy that got their panties in a bunch and it was all dramatic and it yeah. made it so much bigger than it actually was. That sometimes happens regardless of your background with certain personalities, but you, you, you hang on to them. You put them in your toolbox. Right. And when you are then in command, then you open up your toolbox and you say, I'm not going to do what that guy did, right? but I'm going to emulate what this other person did
1: it it kind of it kind of goes back to what we talked about too uh, i mean the difference between being a leader and being a manager you know a lot of people are good at managing being a micromanager you know and, and making sure all of the you know every, all the dots are, are 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 marked and T's are crossed everything you know but at the end of the day they're not a, not necessarily a leader some managers make leaders but uh, a leader is somebody that inspires you know and i think it's something that you learn in the military particularly if you've grown to become like a squadron commander, even as an aircraft commander in a in a multi-crew um, member aircraft like a C-130 where you learn how to manage people. And after doing it for 10, 20 years, you just understand who you can trust, who you can't trust, uh, you know, how you manage them differently. Uh, and, and, you know, and at the end of the day, a lot of it boils down to, you know, I hate to use the term mission hackers, but in the military, we're used to, you know, getting meeting the objective, getting the job done. And sometimes it's just a little bit incompatible with, you know, the airlines. There's a lot of people in the airline don't want to take that extra step. You know, it's like, it's not my job to do this. And. And I wouldn't say it burns me, but it's just not my style. If I have to, you know, push the injured lady, the lady that's waiting for a wheelchair, if I have to push her wheelchair up the jet bridge so that the flight attendants can get off the airplane and get things moving, I do that. I've done it quite a bit lately because there's just after COVID, they just don't have enough people to push wheelchairs, believe it or not. But. um At the at the end of the day, I think that's something that differentiates us too a little bit is that, you know, we we just like to get the job done and do whatever we we need to do to to do it. And and also like I said, you know, some of the some of the leadership styles that you that you've learned or gained in the military are vastly different than what you would have in an airline.
0: And before we jump into your time and how your progression in aviation led to an airline career. Um, I, I want to ask you one more question um, in regards to your retirement you showed me a photo you're like check this out and you showed me this crate that came oh, yeah. for you tell me about this crate oh uh, so I, uh, a couple of my buddies got
1: together and bought a uh, they had a, they bought a c130 prop just the propeller itself and it, it's all finished and it has uh, it's polished and it's well painted and that base and everything at the bottom with my dates and my rank and everything it's really cool came in a big wooden box that my buddy was like don't open it wait until we can facetime and so i had it outside my garage it wouldn't fit in my garage it was so tall yeah <laughs> but yeah it was really cool yes. one
0: of the coolest yeah. things and just ideas to to yeah. do that for you yeah and you showed it to me and of course in, in all your humility you're like check this out I'm like, wait, let me see that. And I grabbed your phone and I read the plaque and I went, Oh my gosh, really? Major General, huh? And you're like, Yeah, and we've been flying together for a few days. Not once have you ever mentioned your rank. I tell me how you. you tell me how you ended up at that rank. Because not a lot of people get to say that they were a major general in retirement.
1: You know, a lot of it just <laughs> You know, being in the right time at the right place. I mean, uh, in the, in an organization like an Air National Guard, there's just not a lot of opportunities as there is on active duty. You know, I, I wanted to stay in the state of California, and you know, a lot of it had to do with you know me working hard and and taking the opportunities that were presented to me. And some of them weren't pleasant. But you know, I deployed several times. I did staff tours that weren't necessarily pleasant. I did a Pentagon tour for two years, and um. Just, you know, just make yourself available for everything that comes along. And don't say no. Don't, you know, try your hardest not to say no. Sometimes you just, the family life is not conducive to it. But if there's any way you can make it happen, you know, I made it happen. And then, uh, you know, a lot of, it, like I said, a lot of it was timing. You know, we had a wing commander that passed away uh, while he was, uh uh, he was actually, uh, you know, on in the position, so that opened up a, a vacancy. And if he hadn't, it would probably would have been a couple more years for an opportunity to open up. I hate to say that, but a lot of it's just timing and and hard work
0: to uh, to get to the position.
1: Yeah, and be recognized for working hard and doing
0: what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I've been watching a lot of videos on YouTube. Um, there's quite a few leaders that I've been following. On YouTube, and recently I just watched a video that talked about the difference that we kind of scratched the surface on earlier today was the difference between managing and leading. Yeah, um, and I think that's a distinction that that is it's sometimes blurred with yeah. people that get into positions of power. Um, and you know, it doesn't matter your rank, your experience. There are those that like to micromanage and being. To- Feel like they're in control because there is no such thing, right? And there are those that are just like, let's get the job done, and let me roll up my sleeves and get in there, and make the people that depend on me have the tools that they need. Make sure that they have the tools that they need. Make sure that they're everything at home and family is going great. Sure. Um. And so that's the I think the biggest distinction between a leader and a manager is to stop and just take a moment and realize that those people that are under you. Are taken care of,
1: right? And they know how to do their job. I mean, I think that's yeah.
0: that's the other part that's important is to let
1: is to let them do their job. They've been trained, and they and and if you give them the opportunity to just do what they've been trained and what they want to do, they excel and they they're proud of what they're doing. If you sit there and do their work for them and say, "Hey, you're not doing a great job. I'm going to do it for you." Well, you're not giving them an opportunity to learn or to you know to become better at what they do obviously so I think you make sure that your your folks have the tools that they need to get the job done right and that was really my job you know I would not micromanage I would lay out the expectations and if they were getting outside of the lines I'd have to probably give them a little bit of a, a vector correction say hey this is how it should be done but Nine times out of ten, you know, they knock it out of the park when you let them do what they want to do. If you sit there and micromanage, that's kind of the difference between, to me between a manager and a, and a leader is somebody that's micromanaging, doing their job, telling them how to do it. Sure, there's different ways of doing the job, but at the end of the day, if it gets done correctly and, and, and safely, of course, with an airline position, everything has to be in line with the SOPs, checklists, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, there's quite a few different, like, Techniques, if you will, that uh, if you let somebody do their job, they're going to get it done. Knock it out of the park. Yeah. And yeah. we'll
0: be right back with Captain Jones right after the break. <laughs> And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the break. Well, we've been sitting here talking to Captain Greg Jones about his journey in aviation. And we can sit here, probably record four or five <laughs> episodes straight, just about his experiences in the Air National Guard and just some inspiring stories. Thank you so much for sharing yeah, this with us my today. my pleasure. Thanks for and, having me. Yeah. Uh, today... We were talking about when you got started, and there's a lot of overlap here. You got right. into the aviation industry back in what was it 2000? Yeah. So, how did you transition? Maintain your your military career, your time in the guard, continue to move up the ranks, and start also at a civilian job. What what did that transition look like? Well, luckily, and I think they all are,
1: all of the major companies are required by law, but the particular legacy company that I was hired by had a very strong uh, support of the military. So uh, when I initially got hired, um, we had opportunity to take time uh, off for military and move our schedule around, and, which has gone away. It was in the contract. But now we still have a lot of opportunity to take military leave, uh, to move your reserve schedule around still a little bit to uh, to keep your guarantee, but to do your military. So, uh, luckily, the the uh, airline companies and just about everybody else is now by USARA has has forced um, all companies to to give uh, guard and reserve military members the time off that they deserve. So it 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 pretty much just boils down to, it, at some point, a money issue that if you're a new hire at an airline and you're a major or lieutenant colonel in the military, you typically make more money on military. So you'll find somebody fairly new at an airline will be taking a lot of military leave to keep paying the bills. I mean, it is an additional paycheck. Um, and then over time, you know, most uh, the smart play is to get to your 20 years. If you, you know, you got hired, if you went, you know, uh, pure guard. I was a guard baby, so I never had any active duty time other than deployments and training and staff time and stuff like that. But but somebody came off. If somebody comes off, off active duty after six years, it, it's really the smart play to get to 20 year retirement because I'm oh, collecting yeah. mine now, and it's it's beautiful to be in the. We call it the check of the month club. And so uh, if you can put in that additional 14 or whatever it is to get to 20 so that you can do that. But going back to your question, it it's it it can be a lot of time if you allow it to be. If you want to spend a lot of time in the military and a lot of time with your airline job, then uh, it can be difficult on the family life, which uh, at the end of the day should be the one you're focusing on. So. You can take a lot of time off from the commercial, you know, and, and take take longer leaves. We've got a great uh program at uh at the current my current company. Uh if you take long term military leave, anything over four months, four consecutive complete months, it's considered long term. And then you can come back to uh any aircraft you can hold at any location. So when I left to go on my last deployment, which was six months long in 2017, I left as an Airbus first officer in L.A. And while I was deployed, uh, the 787 FO in L.A. became junior. So I came back. I didn't come back to the Airbus FO. I came back to the eight FO. Mm-hmm. And that's it, I don't have to apply for it. I mean, I don't have to um you don't have to bid for it. It's just automatic. It's one of the few things left in our cool. contract. That's pretty cool. So um, that's how I was able to move. So they're very supportive still of the Guard and Reserve, particularly if you take you know any amount of time off. So it, and I think maybe part of, maybe I'm reading something into your question, but I'll answer it anyway. But uh, it is a, a culture shift to go from um, military to an airline. Uh, particularly when I started flying uh, in, in the military, the C-130s, we really did everything ourselves. We did all our own flight planning, you know, you did everything, uh, uh, you know, from showing up, you did all the planning, you did everything, and then and in the last 15, 10, 15 years, see. Now, the Air Mobility Command uh, has really set up like a dispatch system where they do all the flight planning for you. So with the, the military is already kind of migrating to a mindset like the commercial world where, you know, the, the crew would show up and be handed the products to go flying with the flight plan, the, the charts, everything that they need, all of the dip- diplomatic clearances, everything's been done for them. So the military is kind of migrating a little bit towards the military in that respect. I'm sorry, the military is migrating a little bit towards the commercial world in that respect. So I think that part of it's easier. Um, I think checklist discipline in the military is very, uh, is very ingrained in you. And I think that's helped a lot coming to the commercial world where you just expect that you don't do anything without running a checklist first. And at the end of the flight, too, you run a checklist and everything. Right. Sometimes the titles of the checklist get, and I say the wrong one. <laughs> right. Laws
0: of primacy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many times have uh, I sat there and, and said, oh, a parking checklist? I mean, secure checklist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, even even in the own in our own company at Legacy, you know, yeah. they've changed these titles. Yeah. Like, you know, you'll get a new director of flight, uh. and the new director of flight will say, well, uh, I got to put my mark on the company, so we're going to change this checklist. Uh, and we're going to change the verbiage here. and." And then, you know, later on when they retire, they go, you know how instead of saying uh, this complete, now we say verified? That was me. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but uh, thank you for that. What, what I was getting to was, were you, did you use or take advantage of any of the programs to, that are in place now? Like RTAG is a, a rotor to airline group. Uh, it's a great program we've talked about on the show. In order to go and transition from military to civilian, or did you know someone that said, "Hey, come work for this company," Uh, or did you just kind of take a shot in the dark and go, "I like this company; it looks good. I'm going to apply."
1: I think I I think it's the latter. Just pretty much, most uh, military pilots just apply. They shotgun everywhere. I didn't shoot. I didn't shotgun everywhere. There's some things I did not want to do. I didn't want to work at a company that flew four or five legs a day. And only had peanuts to eat in the back and, uh, or cargo was just not my, what I wanted to do. I'm not. And a now you're flying four or five lakes a day and getting pretzels. And I stuff. know. I know. <laughs> the world's migrated that way. Or red eyes. I, you know, I didn't want to do cargo red eyes. And what did we do last night? Right. Red eye. Right. So, uh. But, you know, I, I didn't really use any of the resources. I didn't go to any of the seminars or any of that, you know. I And the, the, when I got hired in 2000, it just didn't seem to be a lot of it out there. I'm not sure. Sh- I know there was, but I think in, in the last couple of years, it's become a real issue, you know, trying trying to uh, get pilots into the commercial yeah. career field.
0: Well, we talked about... Uh there was an article recently. We were, I think, we both were yeah. looking at the headlines about Generation Z yeah. pilots, and and what's the difference between an old school pilot that had to do it all, yeah. had to do the flight yeah. plan, had to call the dispatch, and and you know change things, and had to kind of yeah. really was responsible for everything. And now that's kind of been torn away. We were talking about this actually on our very last episode, yeah, uh, with Rob and and Roger exactly about the differences between. Uh, corporate flying um and some of the airline flying and the responsibilities between the two and i think that carries over with military and civilian flying as well there's so much difference or differences in the, in the responsibility and as you're mentioning now even the military is kind of getting into spreading out that responsibility so that we yeah. are more productive we our mind yeah. is in the game just for that one particular aspect of the mission, we sharpen our sword that way. Right. Um, and and we're, we're given the peak efficiency opportunity um, that years ago we were responsible for so much that it, I don't think we were as sharp. And now that our responsibilities have kind of dwindled down into just take care of what you need to do and do it so well that you know you can show up to the airplane and in 20 minutes you can be in the air completed not skipping any steps running every checklist do every flow correctly um and i think that's different and with the gen zers they never knew the the other aspect so all they know is this peak efficiency and then the minute you go into an airport where you have to get awos file a flight plan with san francisco radio or a radio station or make a phone call to open up your flight plan and get a release and they're like wait a minute i haven't done this since i was a private pilot or maybe never. They were a military pilot. Mm -hmm. And once they get outside of their comfort zone, it's like a deer in headlights. Yeah, And it's because they just didn't have that experience that some of the older pilots had.
1: And that, you know, just that brings up a thought I had in my head as you were speaking. And, And, you know, when we talk about military pilots in the commercial world, I think there's really at least two major groups. You know, you have the the military pilots that came from a heavy background, a tank or an airlift kind of a background, where they're used to working with a crew and they're used to going to locations. Like in the C-130, We, I traveled all over the world to the most austere locations trying to figure out. I mean, I actually, ha- I spent two weeks in Antarctica, so I can say that I've been to every continent in the world, and most all of it was in a Herc. Whereas if on the other side, the other major group would be the, the single seat aircraft, the fighter pilots, the strike pilots, which are used to operating alone. And so, you know, when, when you say, I I just flew with a military pilot, well, did you fly with a former fighter pilot or a former heavy pilot? Because yeah. they're going to come into this job a little differently prepared and a little different mindset. And, and I'm, not, I'm not criticizing uh, at all. Are not attempting to criticize at all. I just want to delineate that there is a difference between those pilots that have spent their whole military career flying alone, not running a checklist with somebody else, not seeking input from somebody else in the airplane, because that that's something that I learned early in my career as an aircraft commander in the C-130, is that if you don't solicit input from your other crew members, they shut down, and they're no longer, you know, providing any use to you at all, yeah. not at all, but pretty much. But if you bring them in as a team, you work together, you take all of their input, and then at the end of it, you go, thanks for the input. Thanks for the input. Thanks for the input. This is what we're going to do. I'm the aircraft commander. I'm going to make a decision. I've taken all of your input, but I'm going to make this decision based on what I believe to be the best course of action. And it may or may not be based on input. And I've and i and I've had my mind changed dramatically by, you know, I'm, I'm. this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to divert to here. And you know, the other pilot, the navigator, the engineer go, oh, hey, boss, this is a better idea. Let's do this. Let's do this. And, and, I, and, and I have no problem changing my mind. If they, can, if they can tell me, give me a better idea, I'll follow it. And boom, away I go. And that's just a leadership, part of my leadership uh, style that I've learned over the years. Well, you're not going to have that opportunity if you're in a single seat airplane to take input from these other crew members and kind of come up. You're always on your own. So now when you're operating in a crew airplane, like in the commercial world, Maybe a little more difficult. Luckily, you don't start off as a captain. You start as an FO and you kind of start figuring things out. But you, they've never been to a look. You can't put a Viper or an F-15 in Suriname on the, on the field there. It just doesn't happen. By themselves with no ground yeah, support. Yeah, without ground yeah. support or anything. Yeah. So that doesn't happen. So, again, you know, having been to some pretty austere locations in a Herc, I've done it before, and so I've seen it, although a little bit rusty. I showed myself to be a little bit rusty last night, but that's okay. No, <laughs> I do to help. Keep me out of trouble.
0: That's it. And those little uncomfortable moments, I call them, uh, on the line. They actually are good. Yeah. That we get into. Uh, At my time uh, years ago, when I was in a position uh, in the training department, uh, I would see, you know, students come through. I would call them students, but they were new hires. Um, They come through, and I would have rather have had, and I've said this before, someone who struggled throughout their IOE process or in the simulator, but was able to keep the train on the tracks through everything that was thrown at them versus someone who was sharp but had really nothing thrown at them and they passed because they, they, they weren't challenged. Right. I'd rather have the person that struggled yeah. that was challenged because I know. They know
1: their deficiency. They've seen it. And yeah. And they know what, Yeah.
0: So when we go into a place that we've never been before and we're like, oh, they, they want us to drop the break. Okay. Let's, we're, we're on the clock now. We drop the break. All right. We're ready to push. Oh, there's no tug here, captain. Oh, um, guess we should I can't start an a engine we should
1: probably i can't release a break is there chalks
0: are there chalks down there what like what <laughs> you didn't say that uh because there was a tug we just didn't know yeah we didn't know that there wasn't a bar so yeah i mean it was it's all these little things but now we know yeah and now like you go maybe into you know, a different location in, yeah. in south america or in mexico and yeah. and you're like wait a minute there's a ramp there's uh i don't see a tug there oh, let's review this before we actually, you know, so it's good that we go through these challenges. Um, It makes us stronger. And to mention um, what you were saying about single pilot operations versus multi-crew operations in the military, I think that's very much holds true also on the civilian world because when you have a pilot that maybe was in the left seat at a regional on a jet for a year or two, and then they get hired on to another regional or maybe mainline, They come with an experience. They come with some expectation of the job. Right. Versus what some of these low cost carriers are doing right now in the US in our current market. They're hiring CFIs because they don't have to worry that they're going to be there for six months and then get a phone call from somewhere else and leave. Yeah. And we saw that a little bit happening with Frontier and Spirit, where they were hiring CFIs with zero turbine time. Really? In an effort to retain them through training and until they are ready to upgrade. Uh, That way, they didn't come in from, say, a regional carrier, then go to one of these low-cost carriers, and then six months later, get a call from, say, JetBlue or, or United or Delta, and they go, oh, yeah, I'm right there, because that's their end game. So now Spirit spent all that money, for example, on training. They're there six months, they're barely off reserve, and they're already moved on. Yeah. Now they got to replace not only that seat, but the anticipated seat that they were going to So now they're really hurting. And when you dry up a pool of, of qualified candidates like they did when the Holy Owns for Legacy decided to pay all these bonuses and this temporary uh, yeah. contractual pay, this huge pay increase, um, and now the most recent news that Legacy has acquired a fourth Holy Owned, and that's going to happen with Air Wisconsin. Um, so now they're, all they're doing is drying up the pool for the competition. Right. So now those low cost carriers and those places like, like Chicago, United's going to hurt. Yeah. Because there's a contract. Now, if they own them, they can't contract out to a, a competition carrier. So all that United flying that Air Wisconsin was doing is going to immediately terminate because they're now wholly owned by legacy. Right, so it's not really. It's like twofold. It's not just about acquiring airplanes and pilots. It's also about hurting the competition. Yeah, and those have been the moves lately. And so you see, but that a goes back a while. I mean, you, you know, our our companies acquired a few in the past that no
1: longer have the airplanes or the locations or the routes, and mm-hmm. it, it's almost like they're trying to put other people out of business. Yeah, it's not about the smart move always, but I'm yeah. not in management so. <laughs>
0: You're not in management. We're in a... we're in leadership. Yes. No.
1: <laughs> you know that you know and, and, and I and I I'm wondering how what they're doing at our at 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 some of the regionals with these big bonuses. You know, I just recently jump seated on Sky West and where they don't have any kind of an incentive program to stay around really yet, I think they might, but not as robust as some of the other ones out there. You know who I'm talking about, mm-hmm. and uh, and the captain was leaving within a month to go to Southwest, and the FO was leaving within a week to go to Allegiant, and and they're bleeding. They're they're bleeding more than they can train, and they they've got training locations like in Dubai. In Dubai, they're sending people down there, yeah. all over the world, and they don't have the training capacity to to meet
0: the, the losses that they're going through. Yeah, even Sandpiper was sending people to France for the Embryo yeah. for a time when I was there, at least. Um, and, hey, if you want to make money in this country, get yourself a facility near a major airport yeah. and get investments to put in a dozen simulators of different types that are in high demand, and you will <laughs> take it yeah. to the bank, man. Um, yeah, so th- there's definitely a shift um, and a, and a Clear and distinct difference between experience and having to kind of drink from the fire hose and learn yeah. as you go. Um, and those with the experience kind of tend to handle the stress and the pressure from this career field with a little bit more calm and a little bit more. I hate to use the word dignity, but they they just don't get all riled up. And then those that have never experienced it and they come into it, they're a lot of times it's stressful. Yeah, and and you add that to hectic schedules and red eyes and minimum yeah, rest and, yeah. and forget circadian rhythm nowadays, it can be a very stressful job. So there's a, you could tell a pilot that's stressed out on the flight deck before a flight and those that are a little bit more, I, you know, I, and I would
1: argue too, that some are better able, better able to compartmentalize, you know, what's going on at home, what's going on other ways, other places and get in the cockpit or in the flight deck, I should say. And,
0: And do the job. Now you mentioned SkyWest not having an incentive program. That was true. Breaking news just yesterday. A TA summary was released by the SAPA, the union from SkyWest. Indicating that from September 1st of 2022 through December 31st of 2026, the highest permanent captain scales in the regional industry with no slap back will be an average of 62 to 72% scale increase for ERJ and CRJ captains respectively. It allows first officers to earn captain pay at 750 hours of 121 experience. Their 401k program has set the bar for regional industry with 3% direct company contribution to their 401k. A company match is 100% dollar for dollar and company contributions vest immediately. They'll have more days off per month more than any other regional group with 18 duty days max unless waived. 12 days off for a 30-day month, 13 days off for a 31-day month. There will be no more standalone reserves, or ready reserves, I should say. Uh, the additional productivity override will be above 90 hours. Uh, they'll be paid 150%. So anything over wow. 90 hours, 150% pay. They will have 150 200 and 300% premium remains through the contract term. Their per diem will increase to $2.15 an hour immediately. And at signing, it'll go up to $2.25 an hour on January 1st, 2024. Uh, They codified the 70-30 cost share for pilot healthcare with an 8% annual increase cap. They have enhanced work rules that were already in place to be the top tier in the industry and simplified to one scale for all aircraft types. So it didn't matter. Wow! Now, what airplane you're on? now? That um, helps with
1: training, too, if you don't have to flip around different airplanes like we do at, at our legacy company.
0: Yep. So currently, one-year pay ERJ captain. So one-year seniority ERJ captain at SkyWest currently is $81.42 an hour. It will go to $135.70 wow. an hour. That's $54 an hour increase. Um, the CRJ captains are going to go from $76.60 an hour to, again, $135.77. So that's $59.11 increase. That's 77.1% increase in your annual salary overnight. So, yes. So they've heard loud and clear the leadership
1: management at SkyWest that they need to to pay piles to keep them around.
0: Yeah. And I recently uh, was reading a, a post that one of our captains posted on one of our forums on one of the social media giants that they had a PSA captain Check airman on the jump seat. And during cruise, he turned around and he, he asked her, He said, Hey, is it true? Are you guys really making this thousand dollars an hour more than wide body captains? She says, Yes, um, it is true. And she told him that she cleared $54,000 in one month. Whoa. In one month, picking up premium pay at 400% pay plus her, ca- her check airman override doing IOE the wow. whole time. And one of our Captains was like, well, how is this sustainable? How how can this happen? This doesn't make any sense. And she said, Well, if they want to move the metal, they gotta pay the price. Which means it's either pay your pilots or you're not gonna have the staffing to satisfy wow. the contracted yeah. obligations. And I just wish that part of that philosophy trickled up to us, to our pilot group. Yeah. You know, if our pilot group um, and I hate to get into the, the the politics of it all, so I won't, but I will say this. In my opinion, our pilot group, if we stood with a little bit more solidarity and stopped picking up super, super premium and yeah. dropping everything just for like a few months, then collectively we will have sent a message that our management would have to address and our contract negotiations wouldn't be drug out another year. It, I think it really would start to resonate.
1: But how do you do that without... You can't. It, I mean, it has, to be, it has to be underground, grassroots. It they can't come from the union. We, the union already got fired over the sick out you know, years ago. I don't know if you were on property yeah. when that happened. I remember it, yeah. But, uh, I mean, there's just no way that the union can openly you know, advocate for us to do that. Yeah.
0: So Any job action would be... There would be a lawsuit yeah. and litigation immediately yeah. with a job action. So how do you do that? Um plus we live in a society now that it's much different than say thirty years ago. Yeah. So the union uh the union rep's not gonna come to your house with a baseball bat and, and call you out on yeah. your you know, hey you crossed the picket line. No, that's not gonna happen. Matter of fact, it's it's kind of like reversed. Right and now it's like the union guys that are picking up all the yeah. open time Because everyone's yeah. out for themselves. Yeah. And that's that's what I respect so much coming from a background of service and, and flying with people with a background of service because you don't leave a soldier behind. You have that mentality. It's like all for one. You go out of your way to help the little old lady up the yeah. jet bridge with the wheelchair so that your crew will then look at you with respect and say, thank you for doing that. You went out of your way. You didn't have to do that. Appreciate that. And then it, it's almost like whatever you do for others will come back fourfold onto you without you having to sit there and ask for it. Yeah. So it, it actually benefits us if we all just kind of do for others. And I think that mentality needs to be shared collectively in our aviation group, at least at Legacy and uh, some of the others as well. Yeah. To, to remember that it's not just all about you and yeah, well, I got a malice defeat. Absolutely. Totally agree. Yeah. But if we can kind of work together more Yeah. And, and we're all guilty, I'm guilty of it. Sometimes I pick up trips because I'm like, Hey, I don't have that many hours this month <laughs> I pick up a trip. Well, like you said,
1: when the, you know, the union leadership's doing it, what's the incentive for the rank and file to to stay out of open time or to stay out of premium when there's
0: no concerted effort by anybody else to do the same thing? Well, if we all got paid a you know a competitive salary with our current standing in the industry, mm-hmm. then there would be no need to pick up open time because people wouldn't be dropping trips left and right. They'd yeah. be like, oh, I go do my job, and I go home, and I don't think about it. Cause I make enough money. Yeah. I don't know, but enough of that. <laughs> I <get> it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to your, your, your progression. So you, you come in to legacy, you're flying the line. You do your, the rest of your career, you know, you're, you're working, you're doing the firefighter wing, the, fighter, the firefighting wing. Um, you're doing so much to move up the ranks and to give back in the leadership with your position. And then you retire, which led for a lot more time right. at the airline. Now, you also took advantage. You mentioned it a little bit. You took advantage because you got hired in 2000. Right. Big event happened in 2001. Yep. How long before you got furloughed?
1: Uh, it was close to a year and a half, two years. Yeah.
0: And you, so you went full-time back. Yeah, I went back
1: to my guard unit full-time, and then when I was recalled, I deferred my recall, and I was basically gone for 12 years.
0: Wow. So 12 years where you still had a employee number and seniority number yep. at a major airline, and you were doing your time in the service of our country, and then finally you were like, okay, it's time to come back. Yep. And when did you come back full-time?
1: 2016.
0: So— Relatively recently, yeah, came back as a first officer.
1: Mm-hmm. So on the Airbus, yep. On the Airbus, how yep. long did that last? So I I distinctly remember I came back to uh, I had to go line up with a new hire class in uh, over Thanksgiving and they had me initially I put in for triple seven fo even though I couldn't hold it and they gave it to me which was weird and so they had me in training over New Year's and Christmas Day on the triple and then i show up uh for new hire training and or the the week class or so new hires in november and they're like hey hey greg you can't hold triple oh. i'm like oh, i knew that i just i put it in and you gave it to me and they're like you didn't give me a training class and they're like well it was a mistake i'm like okay you want the bus or the seven three so i said i said the bus and uh so i went to training uh that next month and i did get christmas and uh New Year's off, by there you the go. way. Bonus. So, bonus. <laughs> so uh, I, I went to training, and then when I got b- uh, back, I started on the line, and then I had an opportunity that summer to deploy for six months. So, while I was gone, uh, I, I had the opportunity to come back to the seven eight. So, I was a seven eight FO, and then after COVID, that whole international flying went away, and the yeah. job is not the same. How long were you on the seven eight total? almost four years wow. and like i said pre covid it was it was fun it was a great job went to a lot of fun places and they all went away and um you know i was doing probably more military stuff than uh, 7-8 fo and then when i decided you know what i'm going to retire and upgrade i'll upgrade at the company i'll have more time to upgrade and i need to spend you know some time not only in school but to relearn the bus but also to learn you know, captain stuff mm-hmm. at the, at the airline. So yeah, it worked out, I had more time without taking too much more time away from the family. Cause at the end of the day, I'm still taking off way too much time from the family, but you yeah. know, so, uh, yeah, it's worked out well, uh, you know, after retiring uh, from the military to, to do the upgrade and have the time to do it and focus on it.
0: Yeah. Now you've, you've had a a long military career and now you're working in your, Long aviation career as well. Right. If you were to, to compare the two, which one, at this point in your life, gives you more satisfaction?
1: In different ways, they both give you know satisfaction. I mean, uh, you know, probably like I, I I alluded to or said before, you know, serving people was more satisfying. I would argue that, or I would say that probably the military was more satisfying in that regard. A lot of the politics and the stuff to deal with, though, at my level, at the leadership, wasn't so fun. You know, really, uh, there were a lot of people that were out for themselves, were out for their careers, particularly on the Army Guard side of the house. The Air Guard, not so bad, but it was pretty ugly, and I really didn't enjoy that at all. I do enjoy uh, in the airline side of it, you know, the getting out and and flying. You know, every once in a while you get a cruddy trip where you do a couple of red eyes or a red eye and everything gets broken up. But at the end of the day, I can't think of one crew I haven't enjoyed spending time with. You know, I consider myself a bit of a social animal in that respect. You get to meet more people, spend time with people, get to know them. Didn't really do that so much in the military, you know. You had your, your wing or your group or your squadron that you were in, and you knew that you know particular group of pilots or 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 whoever else, whatever group you're in. So that's the uh, you know, the satisfying part of the commercial aviation is you get to get out and, and meet people. I, I actually, this may sound bad, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I enjoy passengers. You know, there's that. Wait, what? There's like that five percentile <laughs> that are a pain in the ass. But a lot yeah. of them, you know, when that kid comes up in the cockpit yeah. and they have a smile on their face and you're talking to them, or you're talking to their parents. Man, nine times out of ten, 99, 95% of the time, the passengers are, are fun to be around and yeah. to talk to. They, they get it. A lot of them get it. Unfortunately, there's a group, you know, nowadays that just are kind of new to traveling, still figuring out, you know, airline travel.
0: Yeah, you are still okay. It's... Well, the days of dressing up in your best Sunday yeah. best to go on that mm. flight to Tupelo is no. over. Now they're coming in their their short shorts or their super stretch spandex yoga yeah. pants and yeah. their you know tight yeah. tops, and you're like, dude, that's not cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still get a
1: you know fist bump or high five. You know, I try to get up in the door when anybody's leaving. You know, yeah. once in a while, you get a high five and a fist bump. Thanks, man. That's cool. I like it.
0: Yeah, you know, and so you've worked with a lot of different characters and you've seen a lot of the same uh personalities, you know, trickle through over the thousands, if not tens of thousands, of people that yeah. you've worked with over the years. Uh what's your biggest pet peeve in the cockpit? Uh God, my biggest pet peeve. Other than dudes that talk about their podcast. <laughs> uh,
1: wow, I you know, I I, I would say probably uh, not following as so you know standard operating procedures because, um, and I don't really see that happening a lot. You see it once in a while, and you hear about it. You hear about it. You fly with an F O. that said, "Yeah, the captain did this and that, and did things his own way." That's not helpful because you know we have so many pilots in our organization that you need to be able to expect and to f- and to show up. To, to know how they're going to do that day, what they're going to do, what they're going to call, what checklists are going to do. You know, when the, the engines are started, they're going to say, you know, after start checklist, or I'm going to ask for it. And when I see the flaps move, you know, I pull up the arm, the speed brake. That's just the way we do it. And when they don't do it that way, you know, and I, I honestly don't see that much. You know, I see once in a while people who are just a little bit, you know, not as proficient as the others, but I, you know, I'm as guilty as an ex, but that's kind of my pet peeve. And,
0: and I really think this company is good at making
1: sure everybody is standardized.
0: Yeah. And we were talking uh, just on this trip about some of the upcoming changes yeah. uh, with legacy yeah. airlines. Uh, some of the flows are going to change. They've been working for years to standardize all equipment types so that it wouldn't matter if you're coming off of a wide body or if you're on an Airbus or if you're on a 737 or whatever equipment you're on, they're trying to make it so that the verbiage on the checklist right. and the flows right. are as close to each other as possible, so that when you transition, say, from a 7.3 to an Airbus or an Airbus to a 7.8 or a 7.77, that the verbiage is so close. Right to the next that it's you're not struggling to learn oh well we said this on that airplane now we have to say this no it's the same thing
1: so you know i and, and i would that's going to be difficult for the boeing crowd because like you know being a bus person you know we even our our standard call outs and stuff at at our company on the airbus are a small subset of what actually airbus teaches if you if you flew an airbus for an international company where they require you to say a whole litany of stuff as you take taking the runway to call the speech to call the all of your displays you have to verbalize it all we don't do all of that but that's where our flow came from is from airbus kind of migrated over to american and those uh, and, and then now we're trying to push that flow over to the Boeing operators the triple seven the seven eight the seven three and that just never was ingrained in that community so it's difficult. I mean, I was on the seven eight I was actually in training in 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 uh Southern Texas or middle of Texas for uh just doing my recall or my currency training, I should say on the seven eight and uh there was a day that flows were coming out and i was with a check airman he's like yeah we don't do those because they asked him how are we going to handle the flows on the 7 eight?" and he's like yeah we don't do those, <laughs> <laughs> him, like, yeah,
0: don't yeah, do those. no <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and there is a lot of pushback you know and it takes time and then i think what happens is like okay well you know, that that's not practical so and then things kind of trickle back and that's why our checklists and flows are constantly yeah. changing every six yeah. months you know now we're going to get uh The the latest I heard uh, from the schoolhouse and the training center is that with our next major revision that, you know, the pilot flying calls for flaps one and the pilot monitoring will now be required to say speed verified. Flaps one. And And that's what we did on the seven eight. The boat so that's a Boeing thing
1: coming over to the Airbus. So
0: Yeah, they say speed check. Right. And (laughs) then so now they're gonna make the Boeing guys say verify and they're gonna make the Airbus guys say verified so that everybody can be on the same page, you know. And it's just like really? It's like, hey you remember that whole speed verify thing? Yeah, that was me. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you've you've flown uh quite a few aircraft, both civilian and uh in the military. What's your favorite one? I already know the answer, but okay. I would always say the C-130. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Which model of the C-130?
1: So uh, I love the J model. I, uh, we were initial cadre in California. We got uh, four J models for a congressional buy. Active duty didn't want anything to do. The active duty Air Force didn't want anything to do with the J model. And uh, we had them in California. They had them in Baltimore. They had them in Rhode Island. And the reserves had them at Keesler in uh, Mississippi. So we went out and learned the procedures. We created the procedures to operate the airplane in the low-level environment. We wrote the formation stuff. We wrote the assault landings. We wrote the overwater, which looks a lot like a major legacy airline's, you know, circle huh. and tick process. Yeah. And so... uh I just love that airplane, I mean, and uh, and I had the opportunity later uh, in my career to do a general officer delivery of a brand new HHC-130J to the rescue wing. They got new ones, and I hadn't flown a J model in six years, and uh, I got into that airplane, and it was just like I'd never left it, you know, the has a HUD, Just just the performance of it. It was fun. It was just like, Wow, I miss this. Yeah, I mean, I, I love, I, you know, I love the bus. It's just, it's just a different world. I mean, operating in a low level environment, doing formation, airdrop, and stuff like that, versus, you know, the high level stuff. So yeah, long, long answer to the question, but Herc,
0: the Herc, yeah, I <laughs> uh, can't go wrong. You know, uh, I learned to fly at least for my private in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, and out of there, out of Kirkland. Yeah, they, they so do... I did my training. Yeah, yeah, they did. They'd come out and they'd go right past the airport where I was at, Double Eagle, and they'd, you could see them on the horizon, and all of a sudden, they were gone. It's like, where, where did they go? And then one day, I was up in the pattern doing some work, and, and I saw the Hercules, and, and there it went, shoom, right down into the canyon. Yeah. And they were doing their canyon right. runs, and I was like, oh, it's so cool.
1: <laughs> we did it at 300 feet, modified contour, which means you could get lower than 300 if you're going over a pass or something, but yeah. 300 feet was uh, AGL was the target. Wow.
0: Yes, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. So at, what's the worst situation so far that you've been behind the controls?
1: Uh, you know, I think back when I my, initially in my career flying C-130E models where uh, we didn't have GPS and we didn't have INS and we didn't have IRS, and yeah, it was a Freudian slip, um, or a lot of the uh, stuff, so we used navigators, uh, and they would use uh, celestial. We yeah. had a sextant port, yeah. celestial Loran, which is a long. I don't know if you're familiar with Loran. Yeah. Bellamy drift. Have you heard of Bellamy drift? No, not Bellamy. Yeah, Bellamy drift is how the uh, the old uh, Clippers uh, ships found Hawaii. It's basically based on a different rotation of the high pressure zone you read about it's pretty cool but that's how they you'll take pressure readings every half hour compare them and see if you're going from a high to a low gradient or vice versa and you can tell how much drift it's incredible but uh that's how you would find hawaii really how you would find hawaii about 300 miles out you'd have the adf tuned up to the local honolulu station and when the needle popped up to the top of the case, you knew it was good. Uh, If it popped over here at 30 degrees, you're like, hey, Nav, dude, what's going on? (laughs) Pilot Nav, I recommend a heading of. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, flying that airplane across the Atlantic in a storm is probably the worst, you know, because your pucker factor's up there. You're like. Man, if we lose a motor right now, you're looking at they're getting icing, you know, you're getting yeah. ice on the wings on the motors. You're down at twenty thousand. The airplane doesn't climb high, it doesn't fly yeah. high. And uh just you know, that I to, it. yeah. I think back of those days and, and how we used to get it. and we were below the tracks, we were out over the middle
0: of nowhere. And it was just like Man, yeah. not smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Pan Am Flight Six uh in the making yeah. there, you know, Captain Og, yeah, Nog, yeah he, when he lost two engines in 1956 yeah. and yeah. ended up ditching in the yeah. right at their ETP. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, scary stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it kind of grows hair on your chest too. <laughs> <laughs> now, final couple of questions for you. I want to, uh, again, yeah. thank you for your time. You know, it's almost no, time for us to get ready to, to, to go and fly two more legs today. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you can just take a moment and think of the opportunity that you might have if I had a magic wand to just go back in time and whisper in your younger self's ear, just for a moment, what would you tell yourself? Well, first of
1: all, let me caveat, I have no regrets. I mean, I've done a lot of fun stuff, you know, in in my uh, life and seen a lot of things and done a lot of things. Uh, probably to answer your question, if I could have gone back to when I was in high school and and changed my direction then so that I stayed more focused on getting an education and become a and becoming a pilot. I mean, it, I lost five years probably at least. You know, I'm a little older than, than my peers really because of that. But um, I wish I could have gone back and kept myself more focused on, you know. Yeah on my trajectory as a youngster when I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, honestly, if I had gone to the Air Force Academy, I would have gained, I would have got a 10-year commitment back then. It was six years. So at the
0: end of the day, it was really
1: that good or that bad. I don't know. But that's what
0: I wish. So just to stay on track a little bit more focused at a young age. Yeah. Yeah. And I think right now that's very sound advice because especially – children of the young age i mean i've got a 16 year old at home and keeping them focused is so difficult i mean they do great don't get me wrong but all the distractions that are out there what kind of distractions do we have growing up you know oh the the moon's coming out uh almost time to go home let me get on my bike and ride home because you know i don't have a cell phone in my pocket for my mom to call me or text me saying where are you you know so there is so much less distractions you know we had so much more patience because you know go home make a phone call Talk to the parents, yeah, is Johnny? Can he come to the phone okay well, hold on he's he's okay, he'll be in here in a minute. How are you doing? How's your teacher? Oh fine, thank you, Mrs. Anderson. <laughs> you know what so w- things are yeah. so much different now. it's a text yeah. like, hey, I just texted you ten seconds ago. Why didn't you reply what's going on you know yeah I, and and I would you know if
1: I had a second wave of that um wand, I had a when I got back from pile training, I did not want to I, I really had no interest in the commercial flying, and it took me probably seven or eight years before I finally realized, hey, I want to apply to an airline. And that delayed me again. Again, no regrets. I I don't regret what I did. But where I'm currently sitting today, everything is based on seniority. And if I had stayed focused on flying and getting hired by a commercial, my seniority number would be a lot, lot, lot 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 lower, yeah, and my quality of life would be a lot lot, lot better, and I'd be making more money, and I'd be fine wide body captain somewhere, yep. again, no more, regrets, yeah, again, no regrets but yeah, but that's one word if I talk to anybody that's talking about getting an airline job, I'm like, based on my experience, if it's what you really want to do, seniority is everything I did see. I say seniority is everything? As soon as you can get your name in there and get hired by whoever, I mean, it should be some caveats. If you, you know, if you want to live in Denver, probably try to get a job with United. Right. If you want to live in San Francisco, United, right? Atlanta, Delta. I, I mean, I would frame it that way. But if you want to have a successful airline career that, that culminates as a wide-body captain, you know, in the single digits. Whatever
0: you need to start early, yeah, and the sooner you do that, the s- the better. Yeah, I think Why we don't uh, we don't make those dream boards anymore that we used to do in grade school yeah. on the board and go, "This is my career. How am I going to get there?" And draw the little lines and and the 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 tick marks, you know, to, to how am I going to do that? Now it's all like online, and yeah, I'm going to do this, and I got to get a job. I got to you know, yeah, be a social media influencer and all that stuff. And it's like, well, that's great, but how does that get you to your goal? We like, we almost like, yeah. we lack goals now, yeah. you know, we, we just want to be, but we lack the goals. And and I think, yeah, that's sound advice to just get your plan written down, put it on your wall and start achieving it. Cause if the, if yeah. it's all about seniority. It's all about yep. time and, yep. and it's okay if you're older, it's okay. Just be on that focused track, you know, uh, the next question I wanted to ask you is, you know, we have a lot of young listeners to this podcast. Um, that's that's my target to get out there and inform the young listeners about how wonderful this career and this journey can be. And everyone's going to have their unique journey. Some people start later. Some people start very early. Some people don't have any aviation background or family, and others do. If you had to give just general advice to everyone about this aviation career to a young person who might be working on their private or instrument right now, today, what would you tell them? I would,
1: I, going back to what we just talked about, I'd stay focused. Um, you know, look at, look at all your options. I mean, there's a lot of options out there, and I would, you know, those people, for instance, looking at the military, uh, think about it hard. Think about it long. Do you want to go active duty? Because after the Air Force, for instance, when you are done, you're going to have a 10-year commitment that you can't go to an airline for. Did I say seniority was everything? So you're not getting seniority for those 10 years, right? right? If you wanted to go military, look hard at the Guard and Reserve, because then when you get back from pilot training, once you have enough experience, you know, a couple years, you could be at a major and still doing the thing. And, oh, by the way, you're getting paid. You don't have student loans. You're not accumulating student loans or paying for flying. You're, actually, you're not flying with students that are trying to kill you, too. You're actually flying new airplanes yeah. and, and getting paid to do it. So, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a staunch advocate of the Guard and Reserve, and I think it's an opportunity for everybody. They should really look hard at it. Not necessarily, you know, the, the, if the active duty is the way you want to go, great. But I think you really need to look at the Guard and Reserve as an opportunity. However, comma, if that's not just your bailiwick, if, you know, shining your boots and cutting your hair and, you know, following certain rules. It's not your bailiwick. I get it. I would remain focused, you know, work hard at it. If you want to go the civilian route, get your time, get on with the regional, do what you need to do, but stay focused on that end goal regardless. And
0: know? there's also, you know, you mentioned the guard, but there are also things you can do even younger, like civil air patrol Yep, that you can get yep. into as a civilian Yep, and help, they'll help you build your yep. time. You might not, you know, get your time all in one chunk like you would if you were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to a a recognized flight school or join a cadet program of some kind. But you are going to get your time and experience, and you're going to make those network connections with people that might be your instructors who are also at the guard, who might be able to put in an LOR or a letter of recommendation for you. So, I mean, start networking when you're young. Learn those soft skills.
1: Be careful in the military. An LOR is a letter of reprimand.
0: Not oh, not, not a letter of recommendation? <laughs> I fill out LORs all the time. Wait Having a <laughs> been a
1: commander, those are never work out well. <laughs> oh, I learn something new
0: every day. Well, you know, speaking of uh, young people, you know, we have many, many listeners to the show, all five of them. And every once in a while, I get an email from one. And I just wanted to share one from one of our listeners, Nick St. Croix, who sent me an email recently, which, guys, I love getting emails. Keep sending them. I love it. He says, hey, Tony, you and I had a talk a while back, and I just wanted to let you know, that I passed my check ride yesterday. Yay! I'm officially the CFI, he says. Just wanted to give you a huge shout-out and say thank you to all that you do on the show. Squawk Ident is truly an amazing an inspiration for me and has kept me going this past year to keep pushing and to get to that next level. Hearing Alex's story about training has been awesome, and I hope to be following in his footsteps next year, definitely gunning, For PSA, Piedmont, or Envoy, where Wisconsin. I appreciate (laughs) all your hard work and commitment to the podcast and just wanted to know, I just wanted you to know that it's truly helped me out a lot. I certainly look up to you and all of the other hosts. Take care. And it's a fantastic picture I'll put up on the website of him uh, passing his CFI check ride, shaking the hand of his instructor in front of his nice look like a Cherokee. And uh, congratulations, Nick. That's, that's, fantastic. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, and this is it. This is exactly what we're talking about. Just yeah. Stay well, focused. I would say from
1: your perspective, I, you know, I've known you a few days and I know you're not making money doing this, but you spend a lot of time and energy. And at the end of the day, it's serving the young people that are interested in flying. So thank you for what you, and your other co-hosts do to, to get the word out there and, 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 and mentor and aspire young people that want to get into aviation. So thanks for what you do, too, dude. Huh, thank you so much.
0: For coming from <laughs> you, that means a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one final question for you before we got to wrap it up because uh, we looking at the clock. Yeah, we got uh, not that much time to go before van time, but here it is. I want you to think back for your entire aviation career. And think of the one person that made the greatest impact to your success in aviation. Who would that person be and why? Wow. Uh,
1: Captain McHenry. And I think he's a aviator here. He's a pilot here at this organization. I don't know if he's still here. So when I went through uh, pilot training, uh, Fairly new. I had to have my pilot's license was a requirement of the wing when I was interviewed, and I had it, but I didn't have a lot of flying experience. I had a lot of love and interest in flying, but I had my private pilot. And my uh, instructor pilot, each, the way they broke out the class at uh, pilot training in the Air Force is you have one instructor with three students. Well, my instructor had been a, they called FAPES, or First Assignment IPs. He wanted to be an F-16 pilot, but he came back to fly T-37s. He hated it. He hated everything. He was so unhappy. It was difficult to fly with him. I mean, I remember flying to Chandler, the pattern, we're leaving Willie going down to Chandler. And he was like, you're effing up. Do you know what you're doing wrong? I had no idea. He's banging on the dash. He's banging on the dash. Dust is everywhere. And I'm like, I had no idea what I was doing wrong, right? I, I, I was struggling. I was struggling at the beginning because of my instructor. And then they paired me up with Captain McHenry, who was the uh, the assistant uh, flight lead. 141 pilot, former 141 aircraft commander, Kickback. back. I, we went flying with him. And it was just night and day. And it helped me, and it turned me around. And it was just... The training style that I needed, and I—I I swear, if I didn't have somebody like that to help me get through pilot training, I probably wouldn't have made it. Yeah. If I had it, and it was McElen. I think I shouldn't use names, probably, but I'm trying to think the name of my lieutenant. IP that if I had to have, uh, and we did lose one of our one of the three quit, and so there's only two of us left at our table. And if I had to continue with them, I probably wouldn't have made it through. So I, you know, I will. I will say and and uh just him but also his leadership style his training style is what got me through and I to this day will still remember that flying with him versus flying with the guy that banged Stuck on the that deck. in
0: your toolbox right from the beginning right from the beginning I
1: started my toolbox on that day that's I'm not going to be like that guy I'm going to be like
0: that guy in in the toolbox yeah that's so cool yeah yeah right, we should, we should- do a little research and find out if I'm he is still here.
1: I should. I should.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you never know. He might have like a, he might be here and have a retirement flight in a week. Yeah. No kidding. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you so much for joining no, me today. No, it was today. awesome. Thank you, you for this it, wonderful yeah. experience flying with you.
1: Yeah. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to do this. Good to Spend a little time recording
0: our discussions. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's kind of funny because, I've been hearing a lot from my previous guests that it it sparked something. Talking about the journey is not something that we do. I mean, we kind of go over it and give the super cliff notes when we get on the flight deck and fly with someone for the first time. Like, oh, yeah, I did this and that. Oh, cool. yeah, I'm here. Oh, yeah, so can you believe the contract? Section 13? What is that? But we don't dive into the, the recall that it takes when you actually sit down in front of a couple microphones have a conversation yeah. Yeah. and it's it's sparked a lot of like i'm gonna call this person or i'm gonna look this person up you know and i find that so intriguing yeah you know, that's so cool to, to be a part of that so thank you so much uh and just want to say hope all of you listeners out there enjoy listening to this podcast it is uh gosh you know late in the game we're getting ready to to get ready to go fly the rest of this trip and then hopefully have some days off now you have a couple of days off too Yeah, two two <laughs> hey that's not bad <laughs> you're gonna pick up some uh, premium flying no. <laughs> <laughs> well we're just want to say out there uh just make sure you subscribe and follow to the squawk podcast on whatever podcast platform you're listening on also check us out on the youtubes just put up a video just the other day we also love receiving listener feedback. You can send us an email or even some audio feedback. You can just record it right there on your phone and email it to us. You can find us on our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango Oscar November Yankee.com. There you'll find many ways to help produce the show by giving us uh, any kind of contribution you can. You can check out all the photos from all the different photo pages right there photos from the flight line, the guest book photo tab. Uh, if you're on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, you can follow us under the Squawk Ident Podcast. And one final thank you to Captain Greg Jones for being with us today. Thank you, sir. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks again, Tony. It's been awesome. It's and been awesome having that opportunity. To it, it's been a pleasure. And yeah. one final thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, <laughs> and take care of each other. Bye, y'all. See ya. See ya.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Fly this airplane and land it. No, not a chance. No, not a chance. No, 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 not a chance. Roger. Huh? Roger. Alright. Request vector over, but. Do you know anything about planes? Clearance, clearance. Roger, roger. What's our vector, Victor?